Well, hold on to that thought because we're going to get there in our study this morning in the book of Esther, and we're going to find the nation of Israel in a position where uh, they could have very uh, easily sang that song that we just got done singing, uh, knowing that God is in control of uh, their lives and their situation and the future of their nation, and uh, we're going to see that as we dive into chapter 3 today, Esther chapter 3. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn there, and I want to read uh, the chapter in its entirety as we begin, just to get it set in our minds and our hearts, and let the text speak for itself before I get in the way, and hopefully even then I won't get in the way, but uh, let's just let God speak to us now as I read this, Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told him that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him, who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, and that is the month Adar. Then Haman said to the king, To King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries." Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadath of the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. 
A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the people so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa and while the king and Haman sat to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. Father, we are excited to come to our time in your word as we've um, chosen to study a very intriguing um, tale in the Old Testament. Uh, we are convinced it's a true story. It's not just a, a fable or a made-up uh, uh, story, um, but it, it actually happened, and it, and it was a way uh, that you ordained to put on display your providence in an unforgettable way. Um, and so, Lord, we want to learn how to be more uh, spiritually perceptive, to see your providence in everything, and to learn to rest in it and rejoice in it. And so would you um, move us um, more in that direction this morning as we consider this chapter together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the past couple of weeks, we have all been watching and hearing about the latest Israeli-Palestinian clash. A ceasefire, thankfully, has been reached, but as Christians, we know that the cycle of bloody battles and, and bitter disputes between the Jews and the Arabs will never totally cease until Jesus returns, amen? I find it interesting that this ongoing animosity and tension between these two people groups over who has the rights to the land of Palestine actually goes back to the very beginning of the nation of Israel. You may remember how God had called Abraham to be the father of Israel, and he promised to bless he and his wife with a son, even though they were both past the age of childbearing. Well, rather than waiting on God's provision, they took matters into their own hands, and Sarah told Abraham to sleep with her handmaid, Hagar, and she got pregnant. And uh, you can probably imagine how that story went. Um, as would be expected, the two women ended up despising one another, and Hagar eventually fled into the wilderness when and she could no longer endure Sarah's harsh treatment of her. And while she was there in the wilderness, the angel of the Lord met her and told her to go back and submit to Sarah and reassured her that she would have this child, uh, a son, uh, who she was to name Ishmael, and that God would greatly multiply her descendants through him. He mentioned in Genesis 16, 12, that he would be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Well, when Ishmael became a teenager, God appeared to Abraham and told him that he and Sarah would bear a son of their own, who was to be named Isaac, and he would be the true heir with whom he would establish an eternal covenant. And so, as God promised, being a God of his word, Sarah conceived, gave birth to Isaac, and after he was weaned, she happened to notice Ishmael mocking him and demanded that Abraham banish him and his mother, Hagar. And so, Abraham reluctantly sent them away into the wilderness, which likely caused even more contempt in Ishmael's heart toward Isaac, 
And yet even so, God spared their lives and reminded Hagar that he would make, uh, or that uh, God would make a great nation of Ishmael and he would be the father of 12 princes or 12 tribes. And Arab, uh, Arab tradition has it that these were their earliest ancestors. And so the, the Arabs descended from Ishmael and the Jews descended from Isaac. And that ancient root of bitterness still remains to this day. Well, that doesn't fully explain the historic hostility between Arabs and Jews. Uh, I think the religion of Islam uh, comes into the mix, uh, which most Arabs follow. Um, And I think that has made the, the hostility that God predicted of Ishmael even more intense. Because according to the Quran, Ishmael, being the firstborn son of Abraham, is the true son of promise. And it actually states that Ishmael was a son who Abraham almost sacrificed, which obviously contradicts what the Bible says. Something else that has contributed to the continual clash between Arabs and Jews is the partitioning of the Holy Land. And I assume you're familiar with the history of of the nation of Israel, but in response to the atrocities that the Jews faced during World War II, the United Nations decided to give back a portion of the land of Palestine to the Jewish people, that they would have a a homeland again. Uh, And uh, the problem is the the land of Palestine was primarily inhabited by Arabs at the time. And so naturally, this was met with outrage from most of the Arabs. And when Israel declared itself an independent state in 1948, you may remember this, that the Arab nations surrounding them, including Egypt and, and Jordan and Iraq and Lebanon and Syria and Saudi Arabia, all joined forces and attacked Israel in an attempt to drive them into the sea, into the Mediterranean. But this tiny little nation defeated them all. And the Arabs who remained in Palestine were forced to occupy what has now become known as the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Gaza is presently ruled by the Palestinian militant group Hamas, whose unashamed goal is to destroy Israel and to wipe out the Jews. They want to reverse everything that happened back in 1948 and take the land back for the Palestinians. But again, they're just the most recent in a long line of those who have hated the Jews and sought to have them annihilated. During our singing time, the Holy Spirit whispered in my ear, and by that I mean my wife, and she said, are you going to quote Psalm 83 today in your sermon about Haman? And I said, "Uh, no, what does Psalm 83 say? And we're having this little conversation down there while everybody else is singing, right? And so she shows me her Bible, and I begin to read it, and I'm like, okay, maybe she is the Holy Spirit, Um, or at least being used by the Holy Spirit. Let me read for you what Psalm 83 says. You can turn there if you'd like. She said she read this and thought of the present conflict in Israel right now. It seems to be a perfect biblical commentary. We've heard enough political commentary on what's going on over there. Let's, Let's hear a biblical commentary of what's going on there. And the title in this, uh, of this psalm in my Bible is God implored to confound his enemies. 
And this is what Asaph wrote, O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent, O God. Do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind against you. They make a covenant, the tents of Edom and the who? The Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek. Take note of that. Spoiler alert, what we're going to hear later this morning. Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined with them. They have become a help to the children of Lot. And it does appear that all the, the kids that were born into, in sin... Uh, in the Old Testament, somehow ended up being all the enemy nations uh, who, who, who would uh, war against, against God's people, Israel. But notice how this psalm ends, verse 13, oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, these enemies of Israel, like fire that burns the forest and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with this honor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever and let them be humiliated and perish. Which, by the way, if you're familiar with the story of Esther, that's exactly, that's an exact description of what happens to Haman, that he was ashamed and dismayed and was humilita- humiliated and perished. Why? Verse 18, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Amen? Thanks, honey. Appreciate you sharing that verse with me this morning. Now, we're familiar with anti-Semitism, hatred, hostility, prejudice against Jewish people. And based on my research, I think that term was first coined by Hitler and the Third Reich uh, during the days of Nazi Germany, but it, it, it sadly existed long before that. And there was another notorious individual, not unlike Hitler, who plotted the annihilation of the Jewish race in ancient Persia. And before there was ever Hamas, there was a guy named Haman, who in many ways, you could say, is the father of Hamas. I'm not making, I'm just kind of making that up, so don't quote me on that. That was for free on the side. And while Haman's plot to exterminate the Jews is not maybe as well known to us as Hitler's or as what we're seeing Hamas do today, it was just as malicious, it was just as unscrupulous and and devious and and cold-blooded. And so here in this chapter, Esther chapter 3, we're introduced to Haman and his vicious, vengeful plot to destroy the Jews. And he's the last main character uh, to take the stage in this ironic drama about how God providentially preserved his people in the land of Persia. We've met Ahasuerus, we've met Vashti, we've met Esther, and we met Mordecai. 
And last week, we, we met the human heroes of the story. That, that's Mordecai and Esther. And today, we meet the human villain of the story. His name is Haman. And as the villain of the story comes on stage, we should all respond with a collective hiss. In fact, that's essentially what the Jews do whenever they celebrate the annual Feast of Purim every February or March. Uh, They read the book of Esther publicly in the synagogue, and whenever the reader mentions Haman's names, the people stamp their feet and exclaim, may his name be blotted out. Because to the Jews, Haman personifies everyone who has ever hated and despised them and has tried to destroy them as a nation. I would add to that, I think he truly personifies everything that God hates. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 19, or excuse me, verse 16 we'll see that this is really a perfect description of of everything that Haman was and everything that Haman did. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. We're going to see all that in this chapter as we get to know this guy, Haman. Now, I'm intentionally referring to the characters in Esther as human heroes or human villains because ultimately we know the real hero of the story, as in any story in the Bible, is who? God. And the real villain or enemy in this story, as in any story in the Bible, is who? Satan. And Satan, through his pawn Haman, was seeking to destroy the Jews in order to keep their seed from bringing forth the Messiah and thwart God's plan of redemption through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we have to keep that in mind. This is, this is, there's a reason for all this. Well, why, why would Satan um, get a hold of a guy like Haman to do something like this? Because he's been trying ever since the very beginning to thwart God's plan of salvation, of saving sinners from death and hell. And so in Haman's satanically inspired plot to wipe out the Jews, we're going to see one of Satan's best moves to try to checkmate God. But what neither Haman or Satan realized was that God had already anticipated their wicked plot and moved two key pieces into strategic positions on the chessboard, if you will, to prevent the genocide of his people. And last week we saw this, that by providentially orchestrating the inauguration of Esther as the new queen of Persia, God positioned her in the king's bedroom. That's a pretty good place to have one of your pieces, right? And by providentially exposing an assassination attempt against Ahasuerus through Mordecai, God positioned him at the king's gate. That's another great place to have someone on your team. And so there they were, ready and waiting for God to use them as soon as the need arose and Satan moved Haman into position. And that's what happens in this chapter. And I've divided this chapter into five sections, which you could maybe look at as five features uh, of, of Haman and his evil plot. So this is 
this little outline will just help us get to know this, this Jew hater called Haman. Well, let's look first of all at Haman's unfair promotion. Haman's unfair promotion. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Now, what events? After what events? Well, after Esther was crowned the queen and Mordecai exposed the assassination plot. And that's really the immediate context is that this uh, assassination plot that was exposed through Mordecai was recorded in the king's annals but was never properly rewarded or, or, or uh, Mordecai was never properly award, rewarded by the king. And since Mordecai had just saved the king's life, you would think that he would be the first in line for a promotion to the position of prime minister, which was the king's right-hand man. And I think it's patently obvious that the, the author here is playing up the irony in light of the context of Mordecai being passed over for a promotion. And the king, for some unknown reason, choosing to honor Haman. I mean, the, it just says, hey, you know, Mordecai just exposed this and saved the king's life. And after these events, the king promoted Haman. Like, who's Haman? And we're not told why Ahasuerus promoted Haman rather than Mordecai. But we know the hidden hand of God was behind this decision. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like what? Channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And again, I mentioned this last week, but this is a good reminder to all of us that life often is not fair. Oftentimes, those deserving of praise or promotion get overlooked, and righteous acts go unnoticed or unrewarded. But we also need to remember that in the seeming injustices of life, God knows what he's doing, and he will never forsake the righteous or forget their deeds, and we're going to see him reward Mordecai in due time in chapter 6. And so this is Haman's unfair promotion. Again, don't miss the irony in the white spaces there between chapter 2 and chapter 3. It should have said, after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted who? Mordecai. But that's not what it says. He promoted Haman. Well, let's look at Haman's ungodly parentage. It says, Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. So here we're introduced to Haman, the Agagite. Notice verse 10. It, it repeats that. The king gave his signet ring to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And I think that's why I disagree with some commentators who say that there was a region in Persia known as Agag. Some archaeologists found some, uh, an inscription uh, that indicates that Agag was the name of a province in the Persian Empire. And so they say, well, maybe that's all this was, was he was just from that area. But based on that phrase in verse 10, that he was the, specifically the enemy of the Jews, I think it's far more likely that this was a reference to his ancestry. And the author wanted us to know that Haman was a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. 
And if this is so, which I think it is, I think it's very easy to understand why Haman had a personal vendetta against Mordecai and the Jews. Because ever since the Jews were delivered from bondage to Egypt, the Amalekites were a thorn in their side. They were the first people to attack the Israelites just after they crossed the the Red Sea and were out into the wilderness and they were vulnerable and the Amalekites came and attacked them. And as a result, God declared war against them and, and wanted to blot them off the face of the earth because of what they'd done to his people. And you can read about this in Exodus chapter 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 25. God actually says, I want these people, men, women, and children, blotted from the face of the earth. And that's what God does to those who touch the apple of his eye, the people of Israel. You may remember God commanded Saul, who was Israel's first king, to carry out the death sentence that uh, God had given in those passages in Exodus 17, Deuteronomy 25. Um, God gave him clear instructions to wipe out the Amalekites completely. Men, women, children, animals don't allow a single living thing to survive. But as you know, when Samuel showed up after that battle, Saul ran out to meet him and said, I did everything you told me to do. And Samuel said, well, then what is this bleeding that I hear? These sheep that you spared from the Amalekites. And Saul went into this big thing and you know, justifying, blame-shifting, and, oh, the people said it was, it was their idea. They wanted to do it, and so they have something to sacrifice to the Lord and thank Him for the victory, and, and uh, we kept King Agag alive, you know, because we thought you might want to, you know, do something with him, and, and as you know, because he disobeyed, that God took away the kingdom from Saul. This is 1 Samuel chapter 15. And again, for the sake of time, I'm just going to let you write those down and you can verify those things later. And if you remember, Samuel did do something with King Agag. What did he do? He hacked him to pieces. One of the many probably R-rated sections of the Old Testament, if it was ever made into a movie, it definitely would have been a PG-13. Um, a gruesome scene. But again, Samuel representing the holiness of God and dealing with the enemies of his people. And because they were left alive, the Amalekites, the Amalekites continued to reproduce and to wreak havoc on the Israelites. In fact, David was pillaged. David and his men were pillaged by the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 30. In fact, an Amalekite put Saul to death on the battlefield. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, this young man ran to David and said, hey, Saul's dead. And he said, well, how did he die? He says, well, he asked me to kill him. And David's like, and you did? He's the Lord's anointed. You don't touch the Lord's anointed. I had plenty of times, plenty of opportunities to kill him, and I never touched him. And he confessed that he was an Amalekite. And so after he left, David ordered some of his men to go kill him. This Amalekite who had killed the first king of Israel. And again, since Saul failed to obey God, some Amalekites survived, and one of their descendants, Haman, wanted to get revenge on his ancient 
people's enemy. And so that's his ungodly parentage. Now let's look at Haman's unbridled pride in verse 2. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. And so this, in this newly uh, appointed position, Haman was second only to the king. Everyone else was under him, and so everyone was ordered to pay homage to him and to bow in his presence. And um, However, it says here, Mordecai refused. Because Mordecai knew that by bowing down to Haman, this would be an act of idolatry. He would be breaking the first two commandments to have no other gods and no idols. And we see this in the book of Daniel when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had made of himself. And so while Haman was was demanding something that, that God forbid... To, to worship someone or something besides him. And so Mordecai refused. But notice the, the main reason why he refused to bow. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? This isn't just Haman telling you to do it. The king told you to do it. Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason was sand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And not just any Jew, he was a Benjamite who was a direct descendant of who? Saul. We know that from chapter 2, verse 5. And so... Here was a direct descendant of Saul refusing to bow to a direct descendant of Agag and the Amalekites. So this grudge went way back some some 500 years. I mean, there is bad blood between Mordecai and Haman. And no self-respecting Benjamite would ever bow before a descendant of the Amalekites and, and Mordecai's co-workers sought to gain Haman's favor by pointing out his refusal to worship him. And then notice verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. He was infuriated at Mordecai's blatant disrespect and disregard, and it just made the anti-Semitic hair on the back of his neck stand up. And again, we're seeing this man's egotism, that he was full of himself. He delighted in seeing people grovel before him. Well, let's also see his unscrupulous plot. Haman's unscrupulous plot in verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Once he found out that Mordecai was a Jew, he didn't want to just punish Mordecai. He wanted to punish all of them. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, including those that had returned to the promised land, who had gone back to rebuild the temple. 
And so Haman saw this as an excuse to exact revenge on the entire Jewish race. This was him settling an old score. Well, notice the first step in his plan. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. And so the way they determined um, dates and times and the will of the gods back then was to cast lots, which were uh, like throwing dice, if you will, to determine a, a suitable date for this mass execution. And it says it was in the first month, Nisan, which is April uh, or May, uh, at the beginning of Ahasuerus' uh, 12th year. So this is about five years after Esther became queen. So kind of keep you going with the timeline there. And Pur there, or Pur, uh, that's uh, the, word, the Babylonian word for, for lot. And this is where the name, the Feast of Purim, or Purim, comes from, uh, that, that we're going to see, we're going to learn about in chapter 9. But this was a method of foretelling the future. And the Persians were, the, the, excuse me, the Persians were extremely superstitious. They did few things without consulting the stars or uh, omens. They were into astrology and horoscopes and lucky days and unlucky days and Friday the 13th and all that kind of stuff and black cats and you, know, you name it. Their religious system stressed fate and chance. And so we see here that Haman wrongly assumed that the future lay in the roll of a dice. And little did he know that God himself controls even the roll of the dice. Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And God was the one who ultimately, providentially decided the date of Haman's holocaust, and it was far enough away for God's rescue plan to providentially unfold through an ordinary sequence of events. In other words, he wasn't going to have to perform a miracle, throw a last-ditch Hail Mary, right? That's not how God is working here in the book of Esther. He's just using ordinary people, ordinary events to accomplish his purposes in his way and his time. And in the providence of God, the lots determined that the genocide was almost a year away, the 12th month, which was February or March of the next year. And so on a practical level, this gave the Jews plenty of time to prepare for uh, the coming conflict with the enemies, and, and basically what was going to happen is uh, once the, 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 uh, Haman got the king's ring and signed that with the signet ring and signed that decree, it was going to be open season on the Jews that day. And, and anybody could do whatever they wanted to the Jews. They could kill them, take their stuff. Um, that's what Haman was going for. On a spiritual level, this was the day before Passover, which is, we know, right, the Jews' historic celebration of God's deliverance from Egypt. And so I think this would have given the Jews hope that if God saved them from a seemingly impossible situation as slaves in another hostile empire, Egypt, that he could do it again. Now, he would deliver them from these hostile Persians led by Haman. 
Again, this is a good reminder to us that reflecting on God's providential protection and provision in the past, i.e. the Passover, right, the Israel's deliverance from Egypt, enables us to trust Him in our present challenges. That's why God instituted the Passover. He wanted them to never forget that event, that that would give them hope. That's the reason why we celebrate communion on a regular basis basis. God wanted us to never forget the hope we have in Christ. Look at verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. So notice he never even mentions who these people are, and he wrongly assumed, just like he did with the lots, that the, because the Jews were living under Persian rule, they were Ahasuerus' people and part of Ahasuerus' kingdom, but they were actually God's people and a part of his kingdom. And Haman was in for a rude awakening of what happens to anyone who messes with God's people and God's kingdom. Verse 9, if it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. So Haman approached the king with this inflammatory report about this people group. He misrepresented the Jews as a threat to his kingdom and tried to convince the king that everyone would be better off if they were exterminated. This was Haman's Holocaust attempt. And so he urged the king to sign an irrevocable decree ordering their annihilation. And we already learned about this in chapter 1, and we know about it from Daniel chapter 8, that when a king, a Persian king, signed a decree, it was a law for life, and not even the king himself could undo it. That's why Darius had that restless night wondering if, uh, or regretting that he had made that decree that caused his friend Daniel, his most trusted advisor, to have to spend a night in the lion's den, because there's nothing he could do about it. Couldn't reverse his own decree. And his added incentive, notice, Haman offered to bear the cost involving are involved in carrying out this decree. He promised to donate 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury, which, by the way, if you remember last week, probably had been depleted by the king's losses in Greece. And so the kingdom might have been strapped at the time, and like gold is to the monetary standard of our currency, silver was the monetary standard of the Persian currency, and this was about two-thirds of Persians' annual income. This was a staggering amount of money that Haman was offering here, 375 tons, which would have been worth millions of dollars in today's figures. He said, well, where was he going to get that money? Well, I think he was anticipating when they were able to go after the Jews, not only were they going to be able to kill them, they were also going to get their stuff. And like everywhere Jews have ever migrated on this planet, God has blessed them, and many of them are very wealthy. And so he was going to take advantage 
of this by plundering the Jews' property after they were exterminated. Notice verse 10, then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Don't forget who we're dealing with here. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also do to do with them as you please. And again, we see Ahasuerus easily swayed by one of his officials, right? In, in chapter one, hey, what should I do? The, the queen won't come at my request. Oh, you just need to banish her. Okay, that sounds like a good idea. He comes back from battle. Oh, man, I'm kind of lonely and not sure what to do. And they're thinking, oh, what if he gets Vashti back? We're all going to lose our heads here. And hey, why don't you, let's do a Let's get all the virgins and the pretty virgins in the, in, in the whole land and let's bring them before you and you can choose a new queen. Okay, that sounds like a good idea. He responds in the same way. Hey, thumbs up, sounds good to me. And he says, the Jews, you can have the Jews or you can have this people, right? And you can have their stuff. It's all yours. They're all yours. And so Ahasuerus whimsically handed over his signet ring, which gave Haman absolute authority to sentence innocent men, women, and children to death. This was like this equivalent to the king's signature, the signet ring. And in doing so, Ahasuerus unwittingly approved a decree that would kill his own queen. Since he was still unaware that his wife was a Jew and would be included in Haman's diabolical plan once it was found out. And again, note verse 10. Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Haman is called the enemy of the Jews five times in this book. Chapter 7, verse 6. Chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 10. And chapter 9, verse 24. So, like... Hitler, like Hamas, Haman, intended to rid the world of God's covenant people. Verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while they, the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. So copies of the order were signed, sealed, delivered to every province in the Persian Empire by the same mail delivery service that had delivered the decree banishing Vashti from the throne and demanding that every woman honor their husband as the master of the house. So they had a pretty good mail system going on apparently in that day. And then finally, let's look at Haman's unbelievable pitilessness. Pitilessness, if you look it up in the dictionary, it says showing no pity. 
or just simply cruel. Notice it says, all of, while all of this was happening, the king and Haman sat down to drink. This is a window into this guy's character. He just signed the death warrants for every living Jew in the land of Persia, and he sat down and was smugly drinking with the king, feeling some morbid sense of self-satisfaction, and he just seems like a clueless, complacent, callous, let-them-eat-cake kind of guy, doesn't he? That was his attitude toward the Jews. He could care less. But notice, while the king and Haman sat down to drink, look at the last phrase, the city of Susa was in confusion. You think? The entire city, this decree threw the entire city into a state of confusion. Not just the Jews, but even the Persians, who were accustomed to such atrocities, I think were bewildered by this brutal decree. This was a, a, a change of policy, which came as a, a complete as a complete surprise to, to both Persians and Jews. This was a complete 180 from the, the, the White House, if you will. Because up until this point, the Persians had been supportive of the Jews. Ahasuerus' great-grandfather, King Cyrus, had graciously allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem and even ordered everyone in the Persian Empire to provide a free will offering to fund the restoration of the temple. This is Ezra chapter 1. And later, his father, King Darius, commanded the Persian leaders who were harassing the Jews to not only leave them alone, but to subsidize the rebuilding of the temple from their royal treasuries and provide them whatever they needed to, to, to do their daily rituals and sacrifice. That's Ezra chapter 6. And then even after Ahasuerus, his son Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah permission to return and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And he also sent along Persian troops to accompany him and wrote favorable letters to the governors throughout Persia to give him safe passageway to provide him with the supplies he needed for the rebuilding of the walls. This is Nehemiah chapter 2. So this new edict to annihilate the Jews was uncharacteristic of Persian foreign policy, which traditionally embraced and supported diversity throughout the empire. And so I think it left the even the Persians themselves scratching their heads. The citizens of Persia going, what? what's going on? This doesn't make any sense. And to the Jews, this must have seemed like a helpless, hopeless situation. An irrevocable edict had been issued and delivered throughout the empire, and there was no way to change it. And the annihilation of the Jews was set in motion, and nothing or no one could stop it. They were goners. There was literally no place for them to run and hide. And I think that's part of what's implied here in that simple phrase, the city of Susa was in confusion. Perhaps something has just happened to you. Like the Jews that has thrown your life into confusion. Maybe it's a, an unfair decision or a, 
a disheartening diagnosis or maybe some financial statement or bill that you just received and the situation doesn't make any sense to you and it's causing you to be fearful and to worry and things appear at present helpless and hopeless. And unlike the the life-threatening situation facing the Jews in the story of Esther, you can't turn to the final chapter in the story of your life to find out how things turn out. We can do that in Esther and go, oh, okay, things are going to work out. We, We can't do that with our life. We're where the Jews were at at the end of chapter three, not knowing what the future holds, tempted to worry, tempted to doubt, tempted to fear, tempted to question where God is and what he's up to. But if you're one of God's people, even when your life may be in confusion as a result of something bad happening to you, you can be confident that what appears to be bad is really good in disguise. Or as Spurgeon said, good in mysterious form. God's mysterious providence. That's the promise of Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love them and are called according to his purpose. And what Satan and others mean for evil, God means for good in our lives. Genesis 50.20, right? And this is the, 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 the truth that should give us confidence and hope and reassurance that God uses the evil actions and decisions of those who hate us to show his love for us by saving and delivering us from them. Let me say that again, that God uses the evil actions and decisions of those who hate us to show his love for us by saving and delivering us from them. When we started the series, I recommended several books. This was one of them, the biggest one. Uh, John Piper's latest release, simply called Providence. And as I was uh, perusing this massive tome, they're calling it his magnum opus, um, which is all about you know, God's providence, kind of his life work, I was shocked to discover that there are no verses from Esther listed in the scripture index. I'm like, Piper, you're killing me, man. How could you not have any verses from the book of Esther in your scripture index? And in the general index, Esther is only mentioned on one page in the entire book. That's a big book. You only found one page that you could include something about Esther? Well, as you could tell, I maybe had a bit of a disparaging view of John Piper in writing this book. I was thinking I was going to be able to, you know, glean a lot from this book about Esther because surely that would have been one of his major illustrations that he would take not just a sentence, but maybe not just a chapter, but several chapters unpacking the story of Esther and how appropriate that would be in a book on providence. And so I thought, well, I'll go to that page and see what it has to say. At least see what he had to say, you know, that one sentence. And I was even more shocked to find just a passing reference to Esther in one sentence. 
One page, just one page mentioned, and then on that page, just one sentence. So I thought, well, maybe I need to read the context of that sentence. And so this sentence is in the section of the book where Piper unpacks God's providence over sin. And the title of the chapter where the sentence is found is titled, it's Israel hated, Pharaoh hardened, God exalted, helpless saved. He caught my interest. So I began to read the chapter. And he basically makes the profound point that the deliverance and salvation of God's people comes in response to and as a result of sinful actions of human hatred. You ready for this? That God sovereignly wills and providentially ordains to accomplish his purposes. I'll read that again. Let me, let me get that in my head. Is that, is that true? And then he backed up his statement by quoting Psalm 105, verse 23, which is all about the, the, the wonderful works, God's wonderful works on behalf of Israel. It's kind of a history lesson of how God providentially preserved the nation of Israel and protected the nation of Israel and provided for the nation of Israel throughout their history. And in Psalm 105, verse 23, right in the midst of this Psalm praising the providence of God in God's protection and provision of his people. It says this, Israel also came into Egypt, thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries, and he turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses a servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. So the astonishing point is this, that Moses was raised up by God to deliver his people from the human hatred that was willed by God himself. That's classic Piper right there. In other words, he providentially caused Pharaoh and the Egyptians to hate the Jews so he could put on display his power in delivering them and make a name for himself and all the earth. And so I'm thinking, okay, I'm good with that. I think I like him again. I like Piper again. I'm I'm okay with this. And then bringing it full circle Thinking about it this way, that the ultimate reason that Haman, and let's include Hitler, for example, hated the Jews and wanted to exterminate them, and why Hamas hates the Jews and wants to wipe them out is because of God's providence and for the glory that he gets and will get in saving his people from their enemies. And so let me read the sentence, the one sentence in this book. But I'll read the sentences around it because you have to get the context. 
Piper says, I don't doubt that one of the reasons God records such amazing examples of salvation coming through hatred against his people is that we need great encouragement that painful and sinful circumstances are not out of control, but that God rules over the rise and fall of hatred against his people. In fact, he rules hateful circumstances in such a way that they regularly lead to a greater deliverance than otherwise possible. It really does look like an intentionally encouraging pattern in the scripture. Besides Joseph and Moses, recall the book of Esther. Yay! Let's hear it for Esther. And the way Mordecai was elevated in the pagan court and was able to turn Haman's hatred of the Jews into a stunning reversal and deliverance for Israel. And then in classic Piper form, he, he goes to the cross takes it to the cross. And recall how the pattern comes to a climax in hatred against Jesus, resulting in his crucifixion and stunningly our salvation. Salvation through being hated and killed. This will be the Christian path to final deliverance Jesus himself said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And here is Piper's conclusion. He says, the rock-solid foundation of our encouragement is the all-governing providence of God. When we are in prison with Joseph, or when our baby is in the crocodile-infested bulrushes with Moses, or when we are despised by Pharaoh, and I'm just going to add, or if we're under the death decree of Haman in Persia, or when we receive 195 cumulative lashes with Paul, or when we are on the cross with Jesus, the fact that God's all-wise providence governs even the hatred of our persecutors is meant to put steel in the backbone of our faith and help us endure everything for the joy set before us. Amen? I'm glad that there's just one sentence in this book about Esther, and I couldn't imagine it being in a better chapter to make a better point than that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how it instructs our soul, comforts our hearts. And Lord, I don't know where everyone is who came in here this morning, but I'm sure there's some whose life is in confusion right now, and uh, they needed to hear this, and you wanted them to hear this, and you brought them here today so that they could hear this and be encouraged. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us to always think biblically about the things we see going on in the land of Israel, that as Christians we would um, be used by you to speak truth about that issue and not add to the confusion and the fuzziness of what happens there. Your word is very clear what's happening there. And it's, um, it's always been happening there. And Lord, I pray that we would also have opportunity to bring the hope of Christ, the hope of the gospel, into conversations that we might have about politics and about world affairs and uh, events that are going on that everyone seems to be uh, talking about and thinking about and help us to take advantage of them to share Christ. We pray this in his name.
Amen.